right. Good morning, church family. Hi. I'm so glad we, this morning we've sung some of my, my favorite uh, hymns of worship. Uh, lots uh, that mention God as our Father. And um, uh, important for me, you know, as we prepare to preach and to hear the word, to keep uh, God as our vision. May he be our vision. This morning, uh, our preaching text comes from Ephesians 2, 1 uh, to verse 22. And I want to start off uh, this sermon by saying just how much uh, I'm glad for the, the change of the seasons. Yesterday, uh, I was with DeKalb cross-country uh, out for a race, and uh, we uh, were just so glad that it's not a million degrees, right? Um, and, and our sermon this morning is going to be kind of loosely related to fall, so keep an eye out for that. But little do you know that this morning you are getting a two-for-one deal. Uh, this is basically two sermons in one, so congratulations. And, but I promise it won't take twice as long. Uh, I, I, I at least hope not. So uh, this morning the, the t- title for our sermon is Digging Up Graves and Breaking Down Walls. These are the two parallel ideas in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, first, Paul says that we were dead. Uh, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And we're going to see how Jesus, quote unquote, digs up our grave. Second, breaking down walls. As related to death, we are also separate from God and from other people. And we're going to see how Jesus not only digs up our graves, but he breaks down uh, the wall that existed between us and God and us and others. So whether people know it or not, Paul is going to say very clearly that without Christ, uh, we are like zombies wandering around. We have the appearance of life, but inside are are dead and full of rottenness. Uh, We have a prominent uh, zombie hunter in our congregation. Actually, if you did not know, uh, his name rhymes with Creighton. Uh, one of the Coburn kids, and so if you know Creighton, he loves to zombie hunt, and uh, Grandma Lisa, as she is affectionately called, loves to join him in that. So uh, I'd love to share with Creighton uh, that I would submit to you, Jesus is a zombie hunter. He, he is on pursuit by the power of the Holy Spirit to make us alive, to transform us from the state of being the walking dead into being truly alive uh, in him. The letter to the Ephesians has a lot of incredible truths for us, and we're going to touch on a few of these, uh, such as Jesus' place as the ruler of the the physical and the spiritual world, and also the the origin of a new humanity created in him that breaks down the walls of human prejudice and difference. Jesus Christ died and rose again to make us alive with him and to bring us close to God the Father. And that, that kind of closeness is what we, we long for in a cold season like this, the, the warmth and the nearness, the closeness of being welcomed inside. So let's pray and begin with our passage of Scripture. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, I, I thank you that you, in some ways, have made it easy uh, to, to preach, to talk about you, because you indeed are so great and you've done so much for us through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we hear your voice tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing 
the Father's will by making us alive, by not only raising from the dead, but bringing us with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you open our hearts to see wonderful things in your law, and may it change us forever. It's in your name. Amen. So we'll begin with just a portion of Ephesians chapter 2. So Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us uh, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, uh, Paul goes on this long tangent about how incredible Jesus is. And, and Paul says that God has placed everything under Jesus' feet. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is powerful and full of life and victorious and beautiful. Then our passage begins with the strongest contrast possible. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were dead. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 22 shows us that in reality, most people live like zombies, having the appearance of life but are separate from hope and from God. Jesus Christ died and rose again to make us alive also with him and to bring us close to God the Father. So let's take a closer look at verses 1 to 2 and see what does it mean to be dead spiritually. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 2. Being dead uh, is first of all like being outside of relationships with God and others. Paul calls this place in our trespasses and sins. He uses the word in. It's, it's as if our trespasses and sins are this world, this reality, this multiverse dimension where we lived separate from God. We were in them. Um, and it's, it's uh, something like you know, maybe you've experienced in your life a, a world of anger and hatred, uh, maybe a, a world of depression and anger. Maybe it's a world of wonder. Why, why, God, do I continually, as Scripture says, follow my lusts and my passions to my destruction, and it seems like there's nothing I can do about it? Uh, Paul also says it's not just our trespasses and sins at work in this state of being. He also mentions this strange character. Uh, he says that we followed before following Christ. He's called the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And the spirit at work in those who are disobedient. Even after five years of Bible college and reading this verse like I knew what it meant, I finally had to say, I have no idea what this is talking about. So who is the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Though that phrase is confusing for us, the, the Ephesians, uh, the original recipients of this letter, knew exactly what Paul was talking about. 
Those are evil spiritual forces in the world. Ephesus was the cultic center of the region, home to sorcery and a, and a prominent pagan temple. And so today, uh, around the time of Halloween, we like to pretend, or at least think we're pretending, and, uh, and we like to um, see ghosts and spirits and, and all kinds of things as this playful, make-believe reality. Well, it couldn't have been any more different for the people of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was famous for being the place to go. If you wanted uh, a spell, a charm, uh, to buy something that would help you with an illness, a problem you were having in life, uh, the people of Ephesus had uh, the, the regional temple. And so people from all over would come around to, to buy things in that temple that they thought might help them uh, in their life. Uh, Jesus also, you, you see this in the Gospels, he regularly encountered people who were possessed by demons. He talked about spirits. It's, it's obvious that for Jesus and the apostles, this spiritual world was, was not make-believe. In fact, it was a very serious part of everyday life. Uh, these spirits could wreak havoc on somebody's daily life. So anything from bad luck to serious illnesses, people would be desperate for a magical way to, to solve these problems, to appease the spirits. And, and so we, in our modern separate context, think of magic as something cute. Uh, for the people of Ephesus and, and Jesus in the first century, it was a matter of life and death, and magic was a terrifying and mysterious means to try to get control over one's life. And so when Paul refers to the prince of the air, uh, he's referring to the devil. The, in Greek uh, thought, it was believed that the empty, empty spaces in the atmosphere were where spiritual beings lived, and so the prince of the air uh, is the ruler of them. And this is the one who leads people in this continual process of decay. Death is a, a process. There's a process to death uh, when, when we die, and it, it doesn't get better. And the devil leads us on in, in, in a permanent decay. In addition to following the world and the devil, Paul says that the Ephesians also followed in this process of death their own sinful nature. In verse 1, he used the word sins and trespasses. And the word sin we might be really familiar with. The word trespass, I think, is really interesting and kind of helpful to look at. So maybe you've seen a sign before which said, no trespassing. Right, no trespassing. Actually, our, our beloved neighbors across the parking lot, I went to drop something off on their doorstep, a, a, a letter of invitation, and it said something like, um, you know, I don't mind spending money on ammo or something like that. It's a no trespassing sign, right? So no trespassing. It's a warning to not cross the line, usually with a pretty significant threat. And so in the same way, our trespasses are when we've crossed the line. When we've crossed the line with God, uh, we can also commit trespasses against other people. When we cross the line and uh, what means a right relationship with that person, in Galatians 5, Paul gives a list of what these desires include. And they include sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, 
witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, and fits of rage, and selfish ambition. So all of us lived among them at one time, verse 3 says, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath is the last part of what it means to be spiritually dead. Uh, God created the world to be good. And death was not a part of his original creation. And so the presence of death in God's world incurs his wrath, his just wrath against something that's broken and terrible. So I wonder, was there a time when you would say that your life was characterized by one or more of these things? I can only speak for myself when I say that every time I've pursued my selfish ambition over and against what was good for another person, it resulted in death in our relationship. It didn't go well, right? And outside of right relationships, we might as well be a corpse. How can this be changed? How can we go from death to life? And where do we go from being in our trespasses and sins, this world over here? Uh, and how can we get out of that? Well, the answer is, Adam briefly mentioned, there is nothing we can do about that, actually. Uh, part of being dead means to be powerless. Uh, a dead body can't do anything other than continue to decompose. And so if the dead could raise themselves, then the, the AED in the back of our sanctuary is kind of redundant, right? If you can do that yourself, congratulations. Let us know beforehand, and Alexis won't have to do compressions on you, or Daphne, wherever she is. So uh, just so you know. God must intervene. He must be the one to do something to raise us from the dead. So let's look at Ephesians 2, 4-6. Scripture says that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus you see that prefix again, in. If we were in our trespasses and sins, the scripture says that we have been put in Christ, in this whole new reality, this world. Being loved first, I would argue with you, is what really changes our lives. From the time God first called Abraham to Jesus calling the 12 disciples, it's God who initiates, it's God who shows his love for people. I'm reminded of a time uh, I spent uh, at a Presbyterian church in South Carolina while I was in college. And there I taught English for middle school boys to middle school boys from Syria and the Congo who didn't know English. Uh, and it was, a, it was a great time. Uh, it was very different than the, the youth group we have here, whereas it's mostly girls who are, you know, from our country in South Carolina. It was all boys, uh, none of them uh, spoke English as their first language, and some of them were, weren't even Christians. In fact, uh, one of our students, Muhammad, uh, was from a Muslim family, and he was a great kid. One time I asked him what it was like for him to first come to the U.S. His family fled Syria as ISIS took over that country. And this is what he said. He said, it was scary. We got off the plane and didn't know anybody. I didn't know English. My sister was crying. Even my dad was crying. But when we got here, we met some people from the church, and they helped us. 
So is there someone in your life who has loved you like that, who intervened? Uh, Maybe a parent or a friend who just held you when you were sad or angry? In the same way, God uh, used uh, the church as an instrument of love to minister to this Muslim family who came to our church. something we would never think possible. God, first and foremost, has used his son, Jesus Christ, to be that instrument of love in our lives and to resuscitate us from the death and transgressions and sins that we experience at the critical time of our deepest need when we were helpless and rebellious, God saved. And Paul uses three terms to describe what it means to, to be saved, uh, to be made alive with, raised with, and seated with Christ. And for sake of time, we're just going to focus on to what it means to be raised with Christ and what it means to be seated with Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't raise uh, just for himself. Now, Jesus could have. He could have come to prove his uh, sovereignty, his, his victory over sin and death. Uh, but this week I saw a, a painting that was so powerful. Uh, I wasn't able to get access to it to show you on, on the screen here. But this painting was a picture of, of Jesus Christ, and he's on the post as he's being whipped. And in his hands, he's holding a, a globe with a cross on it. And that globe and the cross represents uh, all Christians. And he's holding it up out of a tomb. Out of a tomb. There's a door and the light coming out. And what I love about that picture is it shows that what Jesus was really doing when he rose from the dead was he was bringing us with him. He was lifting us out of the grave. And so that's part of what it means to be raised uh, with Christ. Although our present uh, bodies experience uh, brokenness and disease, he has resurrected our hearts and has promised us a day when we will have an imperishable body uh, that will be free of, of pain and disease and will live forever. After his resurrection, Jesus secured his victory by sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, So in competition, we have a a lot of different ways of signifying victory, right? So if you've ever seen the Indy 500, I'm from Indianapolis, uh, you might know that the victor uh, chugs uh, a glass of milk. I think that's really cool. I love milk. Uh, Very refreshing, right? So that's what they do in the Indy 500, Uh, In football, if you win, especially if you win the Super Bowl, they throw the Gatorade over over the the winning coach. That's his signal that he's the victor, he's won. Uh, It's more strange for us to think of somebody sitting in victory, to sit as their sign of victory. And, And this is where I think the closest analogy is actually found in music. So in an orchestra... The person who is best at their instrument, the champion of their instrument, is given the first chair. They're given the first chair in their specialty. And so Jesus is given the first chair by God the Father to to show that he has conquered sin and death. And so in the same way, we're not just made alive, we're made victorious. And this is why crystals and spells and all those things are not for Christians. Because we are already seated with Christ above all spiritual powers. 
During his sermon last week, Adam asked the question, what are we saved for? And talked about how we are saved so that God might be glorified uh, by the mercy he gave to us. In Ephesians 2, 7-10, scripture talks about this a little bit more. And in order to keep this from becoming a three-for-one sermon, we're just going to talk about this passage uh, very briefly. Uh, So the tech team will have this passage up here. I won't read all of it for you. But first, again, all the credit for our salvation belongs to, to God. After what Jesus did in his life and what he suffered on the cross, of course, it only makes sense that he deserves all the credit. In school, we read about um, the, the Roman Catholic theology, especially the ancient Roman Catholic theology of merits, and this idea that you could uh, pay off your sins if, if you gave money to the church or if you prayed to a saint, and their, their merits would somehow contribute to their salva- your salvation, their good works. And what I liked about what John Calvin hated about that so much was he said, that takes away the glory from Jesus Christ. How could you say that Jesus lived and died on the cross and anybody gets to contribute anything to that? He deserves all of it. So that is my encouragement for you again in in those dark times of your life. Maybe at the end of your life, remember that you cannot contribute to your salvation and so remember that you can also not mess it up. Finally, we'll move to the second sermon in our two-for-one deal here, uh, starting at Ephesians 2, verse 11. This is where we see Jesus breaking down walls. Though I like, uh, though like I said earlier, this is really just one idea, death to life, separate to being brought close, digging up ditches to breaking down walls. Again, Paul is going to encourage the church by reminding them of their past. And so again, Paul returns to our past life and he says, Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human's hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. In this passage, Paul is addressing Gentiles, and that's basically anyone who is not ethnically and religiously a Jewish person. So that includes us. From the Jewish perspective, including Paul's own perspective before Jesus changed his life, Gentiles were at best disturbing strangers to be held at a distance, and at worst, total enemies. It was believed that the Gentiles could become converts to Judaism, yes, but they would never really count, quote-unquote, according to their perspective as God's people. So in Jesus' day, there was another no trespassing sign. There was a trespassing sign in the temple. And there was a sign that said, uh, any Gentile who enters here will be responsible for their own death. The Gentiles were not physically not allowed to come too close to the temple. While we were in Israel, we saw something similar uh, you can uh, make an assessment of this, what you think. But as we drove into uh, Palestine, there was a sign that said, any Jew who enters here will be responsible for their own death. And so this shows how serious, um, how deep this, this separation was. 
any Gentile. So if you're a middle school girl, uh, so a good analogy for you might be other middle school boys, right? You want to have that big wall between you. Uh, so, uh, for example, if uh, a middle school boy comes up to your table and says, can I sit with you guys? And he's like drooling, got food in the corner of his mouth. You don't want those middle school boys sitting with you, right? So you might put up a little sign that says, uh, middle, middle school boys excluded from our girls' table in the cafeteria. But on a, on a serious note, we were also separate from God. Uh, God is holy and perfect, and anything less than that cannot survive in his presence, let alone the, the walking dead like us. And so that was our state without hope and without God. But here comes the good part. Ephesians two thirteen to 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Let's sit on that phrase, have been brought near for a moment. So one of the things I mentioned I like about fall and the coming of colder weather is the great excuse to spend more time together uh, inside. Uh, Maybe cozied up with friends and family under a blanket or playing games. I thought about it for a long time, and and I would argue that fall and winter are actually the warmer times of the year. And what I mean is this. When it's too cold outside to go run and play, we find ourselves thrust together around a warm fire or around a warm meal inside. And in that way, it brings us near. It brings us near to each other. Near uh, looks something like this. Near looks like a hug at church, or sitting together on the porch watching squirrels, or a late night conversation by the fire. In high school every year our youth group would organize a a Christmas party, uh, and one thing I still remember about that experience is the sensation of walking inside uh, Michaela's house and it being warm and the smell of cookies and lots of friends. It's powerful, it's powerful. That's the kind of nearness that Christ has given to us uh, with God the Father. He has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. And there are a lot of other walls in our world today. But they can be destroyed in the same way that Christ destroyed them. With grace and the love of God. So this might sound strange, but as an example in elementary school, uh, I had a, a sworn enemy named Philip, and me and Philip kind of got a kick out of not getting along and picking on each other. Uh, but when I left that elementary school, something very strange happened to me, and I was left with a sense of anger, a sense of loneliness and depression, and, and that stuck with me for years, and my middle school time was very difficult. Uh, there were days where I even wondered, God, why am I alive? I feel so terrible, and I struggled to make friends until uh, one day my dad saw what was happening and said, Blaze, uh, you should go to youth group at, at the local church, and that was strange because I actually didn't grow up going to church. I grew up going to a Christian school, but my, my dad said, Blaze, you should go to youth group, and guess who was there? It was Philip, the same guy I'd grown up with, right? And uh, so it was awkward at first. But I'll never forget the day that the Holy Spirit uh, must have prompted Philip's heart. And he came up to me and gave me a hug and said, I love you. 
And that, that was powerful. God broke down that wall. And I still remember how at that moment my grief and my anger uh, were taken away. And so that's, that's what relational death looks like, that, that anger, that depression that comes from being broken. So having said so many good things about the holidays, I, I know that they can also be a dark and, and lonely time uh, for a lot of people. And so you, the church, I encourage you to do the work, to invite each other in, to draw near to one another. We need it. Uh, we need it for each other. What Jesus did by destroying the wall of hostility also fundamentally changed uh, the nature of human existence. So Ephesians 2.15 says, His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. The wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles was cultural, it was religious, and it was racial. And Jesus made himself the single most important defining aspect of what it means alive. And that, and that made all of that insignificant. In college at CIU, I was in a Bible study with some really incredible guys. I mean, probably some of the, some of the coolest guys other than Adam who I've ever met, right? And so uh, uh, some of these gentlemen, one was a, a chaplain for the 82nd Airborne. So he is a top-notch American soldier, you know, God superhero, whatever you call it. Uh, the other person in our Bible study was a guy named Peter from China, and uh, Peter was a commandant in the, in the Chinese military, and sometimes he would still wear his, his belt with the, the star on it. The other person in this Bible study was uh, a friend who was studying to get his MDiv, but he was already an electrical engineer at uh, University of Charleston, and he was from Taiwan. So in this Bible study, you have... Uh, an elite American soldier, a former uh, Chinese soldier, and a Taiwanese professor. What, uh, if, you know, any, if you've seen the news at all in like the last two years, you know that should not happen ever, that the, these three kinds of people are sitting together. But we all knew that what, what was most important, that God had chosen us and that we had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's what brought us together. And so if that doesn't prove to you that Jesus is Lord, that he can destroy these walls of hostility, then I don't know what does for these kinds of people to sit around and be together. What does this mean for you? Remember that you have brothers and sisters all over the world. Uh, as the, the old uh, Sunday school hymn goes, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. People all over the world, so important for us and in a, in a place like Auburn to remember that your brothers and sisters are in China, Africa, the Middle East, all over the place, hard at work carrying out God's mission to share the gospel with others. So what's the point? And we finally arrive uh, starting at Ephesians uh, 2 verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit 
So these final verses pull together all these themes we've been talking about. Paul says that we in Jesus Christ are being built uh, into a temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, that was really important in a place like Ephesus, known who took uh, you know, national pride uh, in, in their role as the headquarters of the pagan cult, uh, the home of the temple Artemis. And so Paul is saying, that, no, you, the body of believers, are being built into a, a different temple, the temple of the living God, the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says that this is the, the place where God's, God has chosen to dwell, that we're dwelling to make a home. And so the church, you, the church, the church universal is a place, is the instrument, it's the house that God has chosen to meet with the world. Uh, God has chosen you to be the, the, the warm hearth, uh, the, the table with lots of good food, uh, where he is going to invite uh, the lost to, to be and have fellowship with him, to get to know him. And so remember that, that uh, the Holy Spirit is at work building you up to be this kind of place. I'm reminded of another Sunday school uh, song, uh, This Is My Father's House, and I loved singing that as a, as a kid growing up. And the irony is that you, we are fa- the Father's house. We are the place, if you have a big, big yard to play football, uh, a table with lots of food that God has chosen to welcome the world in a very tangible way. So also, if this temple is where God chose to dwell, like Jesus chose to dwell with sinners, he welcomes them. So there is our two-for-one deal for you this morning. Uh, This is the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that Jesus Christ uh, died and rose again to take you with him, to raise you, to bring you out of the grave, and to seat you at his uh, right hand with God the Father. And remember those walls. Be suspicious of people who try to erect those dividing walls of hostility and say, no, every human is created in the image of God. I am chosen by Jesus Christ to be a welcoming uh, dwelling of his spirit for strangers. With that, let us pray. Father God, thank you uh, for your greatness, for your goodness, for your hospitality uh, that you purchased from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people to be your holy dwelling. Father, I pray that we as the church in a secular world that is increasingly... Uh, pagan that increasingly looks to crystals and magic for help in their lives. Father, I pray that we be uh, a temple of opposition, uh, evidence that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is superior to all these things. Uh, May we be a voice for those who are running off after foolish idols to say, no, no, there is a living God who loves you and will rescue you. Father, may we join in your work of Uh, dividing walls and breaking them down and to to show ourselves to be who we are, the united body of Christ, full of languages and colors and and, and differences, but one people and one Savior. Uh, Prepare us, Lord, as we go from this place to, to serve you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.